Okay, yeah, I'm going to start up. I'd like to invite our leaders to come forward. Um, no, that's good. Perfect. Okay, great. So we're in the book of Acts, chapter 7. So if you got your Bible, we're going to do this kind of quickly. Obviously, we don't have a ton of time. Last week, we spent a, an enormous amount of time looking at 53 verses, right? It was impossible to break up. It was one amazing speech by, by Stephen. Stephen has been arrested. He's arrested for doing essentially what God has called him and the apostles to do, which is to preach and proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And so Stephen is in the middle of the temple, and he's preaching. The apostles, Peter and some others, had just been arrested and beaten within an inch of their life for doing the same thing. And Stephen and the others go back into the temple and basically do the exact same thing. And Stephen's, he's living as a leader, and he's arrested and seized by the Jewish ruling authorities, and he's put on trial, except things escalate with Stephen. He's not just accused of proclaiming Jesus as the resurrection from the dead. He is actually accused of blasphemy against Moses, and more importantly, blasphemy against God. Now, all the Jewish people would know, and you probably know because I've said it so many times, that the only punishment for blasphemy was death. So things are really serious with Stephen. It's not a slap on the wrist kind of deal. When you blaspheme against God, you are breaking God's law, and you are therefore subject to punishment by death. And so Stephen is on trial for his very life. And last week we looked at the chief priest. He looked at Stephen and he said, are these things true? Right? What do you have to say for yourself? In other words, defend yourself. And Stephen does something remarkable. He doesn't defend himself at all. Instead, he, he doesn't plead for his own life. Instead, he launches into this sort of history lesson. It's incredible. It's 52 verses of Israel's picture of redemptive history with God. And beginning with the God and creator of all and going through Abraham and, and Jacob and Isaac and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and the temple, he gets to Jesus. And he basically says, this is God's redemptive plan all through time, how God has provided and moved and done things. And you know what? You are on the wrong side of God. Because I stand here with Moses and Abraham and Joshua, and you stand with those that have basically thrown out and been against God's representatives throughout history. So instead of being a story of redemption, it's a story of rebellion. And he tells this thing and says, he, basically at the very end, he accuses them, he reverses it and he accuses them and says, you have uncircumcised hearts, you've got uncircumcised ears, and you are a stiff-necked people. In other words, you are immovable, and you have all the outward signs of being God's people, but inwardly, you are a waste. You are no different than the pagans. And as we're going to see today, they just freak out, right? I mean, they have just had enough, and they lose control. So this is Stephen's great defense. A redemptive history of Israel told to the Jewish religious leaders as a story of rebellion um, and idolatry. And it's going to cost him his life. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to the last part of Acts chapter 7. And we're going to look at those just few, few verses there at the end of 7, starting in verse 54. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive into it together. God, I thank you there uh, for all the things that you are teaching us in this study of Acts. I thank you that it has coincided so perfectly with where we are as a church, that as we see leadership being raised up in Acts, it's echoing things that are happening in our own movement. And, and uh, God, it's, I'm, just, I'm, I'm so blessed by that. And so, Lord, as we, as we stand up here and we pray over leaders and we talk about how we can get involved and share resources and be the church, God, it's, it's right where we're looking in Scripture, and it's, it's amazing. And so I thank you for that, first and foremost. I also thank you that you've gathered us here to be familiar with your word. And, God, I know that 
encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take that lightly. So we ask you to reveal truth to us this morning. Take a moment right where you are, right in this place, and just ask God to teach you. Just go, God, teach me this morning. Reveal truth to me this morning. Struck by God. Something along those lines. God, teach me. Pray for someone in front of you or behind you. Pray that God will move in them. You're in the habit of praying for other people. So Stephen has just finished basically lambasting this group of 70 very powerful people, almost like you would be in front of 70 U.S. senators, right? That kind of power, that kind of, of, uh, of control, except these men had the authority of life and death, right? And so they have accused him of the, the most heinous crime in religion, kind of in religion, if you will, Jewish religion was blasphemy, and he's been accused of it, and the punishment is death. He calls them stiff-necked, and he calls them worthless and basically pagan, right? So, verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him outside the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving his approval to his death. So 54 verses of God's redemptive history translated into rebellion and idolatry culminates with about six-ish verses of Stephen's horrific death. And we meet Stephen in chapter 6, and we lose Stephen in chapter 7. Yet his movement in Scripture is remarkable. So as he proclaims this, right, as he says, look, you idolatrous people that are on the wrong side of God, the Jew, along with everybody else in kind of redemptive history, have chose to, to reject God's representatives, to kill them. And not only have you killed Jesus, the righteous one, but you betrayed God. You're accusing me, and you are the ones who have missed God's entire move. You are idolaters, and you are pagans, right? And they become furious. He said when they heard this, they were furious. Now, the word there, some of your translations may say they were cut to the heart. The Greek word there is the word diaprio, which actually has two big translations. One is that it means furious and enraged. That's sort of its central translation and really what it means. The second one means to cut in half with a saw or divide in half and throw away, all right? So it's why some of your versions, why some of your versions may say they were cut to the heart is how they, some of them translate. Now, I think the best translation is enraged and furious, but there's a lot of power in that second one too, right? We talk about this a lot because when we talk about the word of God, we talk about it as a double-edged sword. Hebrews says that the word of God is sharper, Hebrews 4.12, is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. 
That is the picture of God's word. Well, what has Stephen just done? He has just recited God's word from creation all the way to Jesus. He has given them a word-for-word account of God's redemptive history. And what happens? They become enraged. They become cut to the heart. And when they are split in half by God's word, it's not leading them to repentance, like often happens in Scripture. Instead, it leads them to furious anger. When we come face-to-face with God's word, really encounter God's word, it divides. It divides soul and spirit. It divides joints and marrow. It judges our attitudes and our thoughts because God's word is holy and perfect. It is not something that we take lightly and nod at and kind of give a little bit of this to or a little bit of that. Literally, it cuts to the core. And when we don't like that, what we tend to do is ignore it. It's why we take difficult passages in Scripture and quit reading them, skip over them, or find ways to justify them so our behavior matches whatever we've been able to justify Scripture saying. It's why we call the Bible antiquated and outdated, because we don't like the way it penetrates and cuts to the core of who we are. And what Stephen has just done is by retelling these movements in Scripture, God has used that truth to cut to the heart of these people, and they become enraged, furious, to the point of gnashing their teeth. That word may sound familiar. Jesus himself uses it seven times when talking about hell. Seven times Jesus says that hell is like the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this sort of anger and furious, and it's a nasty sounding word, right? It's that gritting and grinding of your teeth and such deep hatred and anger that it brings about this sort of visceral response. And that hell is going to be filled with weeping and wailing and hatred and anger, this gnashing of teeth. So here we have the religious leaders who are so incited to furious and enragement, so cut to the heart through God's word, that the result is hatred and anger that is associated with hell and not heaven. I mean, it's an incredible thing. They absolutely lose control, right? They start grinding their teeth, and they're so furious, and the prominent religious leaders now become associated with essentially the enemy. So you have this furious anger and hatred. And then we have this, this transition where we see, but Stephen, right? So you have anger and hatred. And then we have Stephen. Much the way we saw uh, at the end of chapter 6 where he's on trial and the, the, uh, the, or the, he's about to be arrested. And we see his face like that of an angel, right? We see this contrast, something so different in Stephen. So they're anger and furious and yelling and gnashing teeth, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So in this moment of incited anger and hatred associated with hell, gnashing of teeth, furious kind of behavior, Stephen looks up and God, in the only way that God can do, removes a spiritual veil and allows Stephen to see a glimpse of what's to come. That here is God. And standing at his right hand is Jesus. And I think God in moments of our life lifts spiritual veils and we are allowed to see his glory. We're allowed to see things that are not normally seen with human eyes. And this is one of those moments where where Stephen encounters this supernatural movement of God. That in the middle of worldly hatred, anger, and sin, God removes the veil and says, here I am. Jesus standing by his side, and because Stephen is so moved, and he doesn't know how to keep his mouth closed, he literally tells them, right, look, look at what I am seeing. 
He said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, G, uh, Philip, or Stephen, excuse me, uses the term Son of Man to refer to Jesus, which is really interesting because it's very rare that anybody uses that term to refer to Jesus. Jesus used it about himself. I am the Son of Man. It was a messianic term that comes from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 was a prophetic kind of passage that talked about the coming of the Messiah. They called the Son of Man. And Jesus claimed that title, I am the one, the Messiah, the Son of Man. And people don't use it. But here, Stephen uses it. And it's a very powerful, intentional touch to the Old Testament, the redemptive history that he had just gone through to say, that Messiah, the one that Daniel talked about, I can see him with my eyes, and he is standing on the right hand of God, right? Standing, which is a place of authority, meaning he has risen to the occasion. A lot of times we hear about sitting on the right hand of God, right? Jesus will sit on the right hand of God. We see Jesus standing on the right hand of God, meaning you may put me on trial for my life, but the Son of Man is my advocate. And it is a powerful statement to say, look, you may have the authority to accuse me of these things, blasphemy against God, right? But God has allowed me to see him look, right? Look, and guess who is my advocate? The one that you have killed and the one that I'm testifying to, the Son of Man. That Jesus becomes the advocate against sin and death, right? I mean, this is the ultimate picture of the gospel. Jesus becomes the advocate against sin and death. He dies in our place. And this great substitution, we exchange our sin and death for the righteousness of God through the advocate, Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. And Stephen screams it at them, basically. Look, it's the Father, and standing at his right hand is the Son of Man, right? And they lose it. I mean, lose it. At 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him. So imagine this group of senators, powerful people, religious leaders, covering their ears, screaming, running, yelling. I mean, this was insane behavior. And they grabbed him and they dragged him outside of the city and they began to stone him. Now, stoning is one of those things that uh, most of us, well, we don't really understand it because it's not a part of our culture. But it was a horrific, mob-filled anger scene where they would drag someone by their ankles outside of town, usually outside of Jerusalem, lots of hills, and uh, it was a city built on a hill, so lots of, of uh, like cliffs and things along the area. And what they would do is they would pick up rocks as they dragged them, and starting with the women, they would start throwing rocks. The women would start throwing first. As the men dragged him outside of town, they'd throw him on the edge, and they would heave rocks at him until he was unconscious. Then they would throw someone off the cliff. And they would throw boulders down on top of them, and ultimately they would leave them there to die. And it was a horrific, mob-filled anger scene. And these religious leaders seize Stephen, and they drag him outside of town, starting with small rocks, just begin to pelt him over and over, till bones start to break, facial lacerations, until finally Stephen falls unconscious, and they throw him off the edge and just throw rocks until he dies, or lays there half alive. What's fascinating about this is that it was illegal, right? I mean, the Romans were in control. The Jewish people, although they had the right to accuse you of the death penalty because they were under Roman rule, they couldn't carry it out. It's the same reason that Jesus was not executed by the Jewish people. Who executed Jesus? Pontius Pilate. The Jews took him to Pontius, who tried to send him to Herod, who sent him back to Pontius, and Pontius said, he's innocent, and the Jewish people said, we don't care. 
And because they were getting so incensed and outraged, they were crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pontius Pilate did what they asked, so he didn't incite a riot. And Jesus was killed on a Roman cross, right? A Roman instrument of death. Because the Israelites and the religious leaders didn't have the power to carry out a death sentence. This is how enraged these leaders are, right? They were so beholden to the Roman rulers, they did pretty much everything they wanted because they all wanted power. They were so enraged that they broke the law and murdered Stephen. Right there. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in this sentence, the entire book of Acts, and in fact the entire trajectory of the church, changes. It's so pregnant with meaning, so pregnant with power, that it's almost inescapable. Our first introduction to Saul, who would later become Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, right, is at the hands of this angry mob, and the people come, and they lay their clothes at his feet. Some versions will say cloaks. The correct translation is actually all garments. Now, I have no idea why after you are stoning someone to death or in the middle of it, you take off your clothes and you lay them at the feet of somebody. Culture doesn't resonate with me. I don't know naked rock throwing. But nonetheless, they laid their clothes. And most scholarship just kind of comes to this conclusion. He was in charge. That's what it means. He was in charge. Now, we know how or why or what that looked like. But Saul was in charge He was the one that was essentially running the show. And Stephen becomes the first martyr, right? The first martyr to die for Christ. Actually, the word martyr, right, um, is the same word that we get witness from. It's the Greek word martus, which means witness. uh, Stephen is the one that first proclaims witnesses to Jesus and dies for it. And he becomes the first martyr, dead, outside the city of Jerusalem, for proclaiming God's word. And here is Saul, right, with all these clothes at his feet saying, and I'm in charge. And the entire book changes. In fact, the church history changes. And God's picture of redemption takes a really interesting turn. And finally, we read down there at the very end, right, that Saul was there. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, do not hold this against him. And he fell asleep, and Saul was there giving his approval. So Stephen, outside of town, finally gets to the point where he collapses, falls to his knees, and he says, Lord, receive my spirit, and do not hold this against him. Sound familiar? Do you remember Jesus' last moments on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? You know the next thing that Jesus said? Into your hands I commit my spirit. The very same things that Jesus utters are the last things on the lips of Stephen. So Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And here's Stephen with these rocks being bashed on his skull. And he has the wherewithal on some level in his heart to say, Jesus, don't hold this against them and receive my spirit. Not crying out, not hatred, not anger. This group of people gnashing and throwing rocks and screaming and yelling and Stephen dies like his savior. A part of me just wants to end everything there because it really, this text speaks for itself, right? It doesn't need my help. Actually, none of scripture needs my help. But there's one thing that has been resonating with my heart as I read through this all week and I kind of dealt with it. 
And it's a question that I would be interested in asking you. And not that you want you to answer it out loud, but one that I'd be interested in asking you if you would answer it in your heart. And that is this. What is your deepest desire as a follower of Christ? Like, honestly, what is your deepest desire as a follower of Christ? I venture to say there's probably about as many different answers as there are people in this room. But they would probably all boil down to be somewhere in the thread of, <clears throat> I want to live for Jesus. I want to glorify God, right? Or I want to bring honor and glory to his name, or I want to I want to make decisions that bring him honor and glory, or I want to be faithful, right? Most of our answers would fall along that thread, right? That I, in things that I do, my life, my resources, my stuff, I want to bring honor and glory to God, whether at work or at home or wherever. Most of our responses are in that vein, and that's not wrong at all, right? Certainly that's where my responses would fall. And so in reality, most of our responses to the question, what is my deepest desire as a Christ follower, following along with some kind of nodding to the what would Jesus do and how can I do it kind of mentality. How can I live in a way that I reflect or that Jesus lives through me so that his kind of decisions are reflected in my behavior and I bring honor and glory to him because I'm faithful. And most of us live there, me included. But then I see Stephen, and I long so much more. Because the culmination of our Christian life can't simply be to make a series of decisions that reflect God, that honor God, or that bring faith, kind of are faithful in my behavior. Because there's something so different in Stephen that has little to do with his actual behavior and more to do with who he was. And my heart, as I read that, looks at my sort of sinful, pride-filled, broken, disaster of a life, and I long for more. What's interesting is that we meet Saul today, who would later become Paul, of course, and we see this ridiculous life change in him that can only be attributed to the move of God. But buried in the book of Philippians, right, chapter 3, what we see is what I believe to be Paul's deepest desire for his Christian life, and what I believe to be Stephen's echoed desire for his Christian life. And I want to I read it to you because it's a game changer for me. This is what Paul says. He says, listen, verse 10 of 3. You don't have to flip there. You want to, you can. He says this, <clears throat> I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So, so Paul goes through all this stuff to this church that he loved in Philippi. He says, but it all boils down to this. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I might somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. Most of us would attribute our deepest desire to God. I want to make some decisions that honor you. And what Paul says, and ultimately what we see in the life of Stephen, is, God, I want to know you. I don't want to perform for you. I don't want to do a bunch of things so that my life and its decisions bring you glory. I want to know your heartbeat. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. The single greatest event in all of human history, the greatest movement and movement of God. Right? I want to know that power. I want to share in his sufferings. You remember when the apostles, having received 39 lashes and beatings, left the Sanhedrin rejoicing and celebrating because they had been counted faithful in the name of Christ. 
I want the joy in celebrating in the sufferings of Christ. And not just physical sufferings, but remember how Jesus was labeled. He was labeled as a radical, a ridiculous outcast. I want the joy of being labeled in that because I know him and his resurrection. And I fellowship with him and with all the saints in that suffering. So that somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead. And it's not a statement of like uh, wondering doubt. It's actually a statement about mystery. Like I don't even know how. Sinful, broken Saul who just nodded and gave his approval of the first martyr. That somehow I might be part of the great resurrection of the dead. It's actually a proclamation of the mystery. So look, I can't fix all this, but I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings so that somehow in that great incredible mystery of God, this broken human can be part of the resurrection. As I read about Stephen and I think about my life, I long for so much not doing more, not being more, but knowing more. Like you just get this sense that Stephen had this intimacy with Jesus, where in that moment of great hatred and despair, God removes the veil and Stephen catches a glimpse of God's glory and he dies like Jesus. Forgive them, take my spirit. I mean, I want to know Christ in a way that it pushes me to live and die to him. What is your deepest desire as a Christ follower? To make it through tomorrow? To honor God with your money? To make sure you go to church a couple times a month? Most of our desires are so driven by behavior that I think we miss the call of what it means to actually follow Jesus, which is, I just want to know you. Because when I know you, my life changes. What changes, and what we'll see in the next few weeks, what changes with Saul is that Jesus allows him to know him. And it turns his whole life upside down. And we will see that Saul will never forget this moment. It will haunt him to the day that he dies. But he comes to a place where he simply wants to know Jesus, period. As we close our time in worship, my challenge for you this morning is to say, what if my, my driving desire, right, was less to do, less to perform, less to honor, and more just simply to say, Jesus, I want to know you. Like, I just want to know you. I want you to remove the veil between heaven and earth. I want me, you to show me your glory. That I might, in that moment, be willing to live and die the same way that you did. It's a lofty goal, but guess what? It's not something you have to do. It's not a performance goal. It's just simply saying, God, I want to know your heartbeat. Let's pray.